The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I'm so excited to have my friend Rebecca Brooks, who is the CEO and founder of Alter Agents, joining me today on the podcast. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Seema. I'm happy to be here. I feel like the podcast is important, but either way, it's so nice to catch up with you. It's been a while. Too long, yes. Yeah, I know. We haven't had our annual kind of wire executive retreat to catch up on everything. I know, and I've used that as such an anchor point for myself, like May is coming, I'm going to get to see everybody in May, and then... I know, and reset and refresh and set goals. (laughs) And anyway, you've had such an amazing trajectory in terms of your career. I would love for you to share with our listeners just a little bit about your background up to the point of founding your company, and then, you know, give us a little bit of a understanding of how Alter Agents has come to this point in its maturity. Sure. Yeah, thanks. So I fell into market research, I think like many people do, without the intention of this as a career, but finding that I loved it when I got here. My background, my college background was in primate behavior, actually. So it turned out to be pretty applicable (laughs) in many ways. Interesting. Yes. But yeah, so I came out to California to work for diagnostic research, which is now added value, and met a few people that kind of really helped me launch my career. When Holland Partners opened up their LA office, I was number two in that office in terms of hires, and then was able to really grow with them. So for the eight years that I was there, we went from a you know a two-person office to a 60-person office. I think we were a $20 million chunk of the business when I left. And at the time, I was co-running the LA office with the amazing Greg Rice. But it had, there were a lot of negatives for me in that position. And although I was running an office, I really wasn't able to set a lot of policy in terms of how we do things. And I found that very frustrating. And I also wanted to start a family. And I had, and this isn't only true for Holland Partners, I think it's true across our industry, that I had seen a lot of women, particularly on the supplier side, really struggle once they had a family. The hours are notoriously tough. We're on client deadlines. And I think that it's something where you know, trying to have family, I've seen careers stall for women. And I really didn't want that. And I was also really frustrated that that had to be a choice. It didn't have to be a choice. So I left and, you know, arrogantly maybe thought I could do it a better way, that I could run a really great market research company that turned out great results and that clients really enjoyed, but I could do it with focusing on our employees first and putting their priorities ahead of anything else. And it's been 10 years later, you know, we're not only still open, but we're having our best year ever. And we're, you know, really moving into some cool strategic work. And I'm happy to say that, you know, we're really living up to the promise, that idea that I had 10 years ago. We hired seven people this year, which is big for us because we're a small agency. And every single one of them came over because of the culture. 
not because we were able to pay more or because we're a more prestigious company, but because they wanted to work in that kind of environment. That to me more than anything is what I'm proud of. Yeah, that's amazing. And let's seven people in the year of COVID 2020, which is quite amazing. It's a testament to the culture and to what you guys are doing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I have to also say that I made the similar choice that you did in that I chose entrepreneurship because I decided that I could not handle the grueling hours that I needed to put into. And again, it's not a knock on any company, but I want it. My sister always said, like, ambition doesn't go away just because you're going to have kids. Like, it doesn't turn off. And so entrepreneurship was a way to be able to foster and nurture both having a family, but also uh, cultivating and continuing that ambition, which I agree with you. It's not the choice you want to make all the time, but you get there eventually. Yeah. And I do think that the industry as a whole should take a look at itself when women like you and I would rather choose entrepreneurship, which is incredibly hard and a lot of hours. It is hard. You know, a tremendous amount of work, but we find that to be an easier path than working at those large companies. I think there's something really telling about that. So yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And you guys have done some amazing research, obviously, over the 10 years. But, you know, obviously, there's a couple of pieces that have sparked my interest. And we're going to get to the meaty one, which is really about consumer anxiety and confidence. But let's talk about some of the other ones first. You guys have done a study about friendship. And I'd love just to understand kind of key highlights, because this is something that makes a world go around, right, in terms of building good supportive friendships as you go through life. Yeah. And I'm also really grateful that we got to do this work during the time of COVID and to understand how relationships are changing and what the challenges are in the new environment that we find ourselves in. And so Snapchat came to us with this research. We did quantitative work in 16 countries. So I think we had close to 30,000 interviews on this project. And then we also talked to a number of experts from the fields of anthropology, sociology, psychology, about, you know, understanding friendship, what drives it, why do we need it? And so we published that paper with Snapchat at the end of October. And if you go to our website, you can download it there for free. But yeah, I really, I loved getting into a problem like this, right? Like, what does friendship mean? And how does that change globally? And then how does a brand like Snapchat, who really wants to kind of own that more intimate connection space. You know, when you think of technologies that allow you to communicate with people, you know, Instagram is more about like broadcasting and influencing and, you know, Twitter is more about snarky comments, but they're broad out to a large number of people and Snapchat's really a one-on-one conversation. And so, you know, very legitimately, they can own the idea of friendship. And so helping them understand that and then part of the internal work we did for them was developing tools that they could use on their platform and other suggestions for how they could demonstrate thought leadership in friendship internally at the company. So we're kind of helping them grow in that space, which is really exciting to do something that's going to have, I think, such a big impact on people. Yeah. And what's exciting is that I think sometimes technology does get a bad rap as it relates to the erosion of personal relationships. And so it's nice to see an investment in research and understanding from a technology company to understand how do they foster and cultivate friendship in a positive manner. Yeah. And actually, one of the most fascinating experts we talked to studies the use of technology to help communicate in the migrant communities. She's actually going to be speaking on a webinar that we're hosting in a couple of weeks. And again, that'll be up on our website if you want to check out the recording. But 
just absolutely fascinating. And I'll tell you one little anecdote that was so interesting was that asking to see someone's refrigerator right, on a video call was really important because it was a way for the people at home to make sure that their loved one was safe, right? Let me see what you have in there. Like, do you have enough food? Are you eating well? And so just that little piece of information, right, in terms of what a visual platform can provide as opposed to just calling somebody or sending a text and how people are finding really unique ways to make those connections through technology and how important it is, right, for migrants to do that, to stay connected. I love that. We all know, you know, obviously we're all experiencing the same climate as it relates to COVID-19. And you guys did a study even before COVID actually hit, right? You wanted to understand what consumers were facing. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to do your first wave of the study, and then we can talk about where we are today as it relates to the second wave. Yeah, one of our qualitative partners, Big Squirrel, came to us with this idea about fear and how they had been hearing more fear and anxiety come up in their conversations, regardless of what they were talking about. They just got the sense that there was more fear. And we were also seeing the same thing in a quantitative sense on our end. So we came together and thought like, you know, let's do this research. So we put out a quant survey in November of 2019 about, you know, sort of like, what are your fears? What are the things that you're worried about? How do you feel like you're community is doing? How is the federal government doing? It was based in the U.S. and we made sure to do augments on ethnicity so that we got nice readable base sizes of ethnicity. And so we were publishing it in the beginning of February of 2020. And then I think what by the second week of March, we were all home. Yeah, the world changed. Yep. Yeah. So you know, it was sort of this interesting, like, because our POV on that first wave was that things are way worse than we think they are. People are really uncomfortable with where they are. There there are a lot of fears. There are a lot of anxieties. They're less pronounced among some populations, but they're still evident. Mm -hmm. So then we decided to come back and do the same research in June and end of June, early July. And since then, not only had COVID had a huge impact on our national psyche, but We had also had the murder of George Floyd, the protests in the streets against police brutality. You know, the election was looming. We had finally settled on a Democratic nominee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really thought, well, let's get back in there and see what happened. And it was a startling decline in, well, a startling increase in fear, a startling decline in comfort and safety. And in particular for African-American population, just how confronted they were over the summer with some of the harsh realities about their situation and then how that reflected in their sense of safety in their community was really powerful. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. When I look at the results of your study, the Differences are so 
wide or they've accelerated so much. Like where in the first wave, you saw a little bit of difference. And then in June, when you did the second wave, you saw the same differences, but the magnitude was so different. Talk to us a little bit about what those major differences were, or those points of acceleration in terms of attitudes were. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it was certainly that when COVID hit, it really clearly exacerbated some of the problems with our system economic disadvantages that people face, healthcare disadvantages that, pe- that different communities face were really, you know, magnified, highlighted by COVID. And, you know, when you look at the African-American community and see that they are so much more dramatically affected by COVID, and it's because they've had a history of being undercared for, right, of not having the level of care that they should, historically, generationally, you know, that leads to things like that. Same with Native Americans. So I think that COVID, there had been a lot of conversation around the disparity of COVID. You know, it first started off as like, oh, this will be the great equalizer. Actually, not at all. Highlighted all of our divisions and all of the things with our system that are broken. And of course, the people that are most affected by the brokenness of our system are people of, you know, non-Caucasian descent, right? So that happened. But then you had the video of George Floyd's murder come out. And I think that there have obviously been flashpoints in the past, but there was no equivocating. There was no other way to look at that video. And I think that just the the raw anger among that community, the shock, honestly, for, I mean, I consider myself, you know, pretty liberal and progressive, but I was shocked by that video. I couldn't comprehend how that could happen. So, you know, that was such a clear, resounding signal. So I really do think that that, changed the conversation for good. I don't think that we're going to go back to a, like, you know, this conversation around like, oh, well, they commit more crime or what about black on black crime? Like this summer eradicated all of those fallacies. And that's a huge change in our conversation about race here. I'm curious if you are a brand out there looking at, you know, the climate and trying to navigate this polarizing economy or a consumer population, What did this study inform you of in terms of what advice you would give uh, brands? Yeah, well, you know, one of the big jumps that we saw in our data was how many people cared about or wanted the brands that they buy to support or align with them politically. And it increased a lot from wave one to wave two. We're going to be running another wave at the end of this year of 2020. And I, I bet the trajectory will continue to go up. When the government isn't working, And again, you know, not taking sides here, you can say it from sides, it's not working. When people feel like the government isn't working, in America in particular, you turn to corporations because that's some stability and structure. And when you have COVID hitting and corporations doing mass layoffs and conversations about corporations who do and do not pay taxes, who, you know, Jeff Bezos and the amount of money he's making, but his employees you know, aren't making a living wage. You have those kinds of conversations and it becomes much more important that you're voting with the dollars that you're spending. And people are much more aware of that. And, you know, my generation, Gen X, who is paying attention to it, but much more so millennials and Gen Z behind them. Like there is a real need for companies to recognize that people will be voting with their dollars from now on. This isn't a passing phase. This is the new way that people are going to be thinking about their relationship with these large companies. And there's some hard decisions that need to be made, right? In terms of not only sort of the position that you take in your marketing, 
you know, putting in an interracial couple or putting out a video saying that we're all in this together or whatever. Like people understand the difference between doing something like that, but then having really terrible corporate malfeasance on the other side that you're not going to be able to wash that over. So I think companies really need to take a look at from the very top of who they are and what they stand for all the way through their supply chain. Are they upholding the practices that they think are correct? If they do, then they're going to succeed. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, some other research we've done is that there's this notion of stakeholder capitalism, right? So it's what you're talking about. Consumers, employees want to transact, want to be part of companies that represent or are aligned with their values. And, you know, and I agree with you, it can't be a marketing campaign. It's got to be intrinsic in the company's culture in every decision that they make as it relates to those values. Not easy to do, but I think it's definitely what consumers are demanding. Yeah. You know, I'm going to mangle this quote probably. It didn't make it into the paper, but it was in the webinar that we did about the second round of fear research. Haggerty, one of the founders of Bartle, Bogle and Haggerty, the ad agency said, before you show me your, you know, social justice marketing campaign, pay your fucking taxes. Yeah. So how true is that? That is what a responsible corporate citizen should do, right? Start there before you do anything else. So I think that people are becoming much more educated about how corporations are working and much more demanding and rightfully so. Yeah. It's almost as if they're transplanting, not transplanting, but yeah, they're voting for their government officials, but now they're actually holding corporate America accountable as well. Right. And I think if if anything, what has shown us over these last six months is that when people come together, they have an incredibly powerful voice. So true. And, you know, they're not going to lose sight of that. That's not something they're going to forget. So I think that's a power they're going to exercise for their life. That's the power they're going to teach their children to exercise. It's, you know, corporations are going to have to pay attention. Completely agree with you. You've also done some research about women in the workforce recently as it impacts the impact of COVID-19. Tell us a little bit more about what you've learned there. Yeah. So in our first study, we really saw a big difference between men and women, much more than I would have anticipated. Men feel much more confident about their knowledge of the world. They feel more comfortable about their place in it, both economically and socially, which, you know, there are a thousand reasons why. But I didn't expect the divide to be so big. So then we thought, well, let's look at moms and dads because parenthood, as the mother myself, has to be a great equalizer, right? If you're sharing the struggles of the family and everything that goes in with that, like you have to become more aligned. And shockingly, it went in the opposite direction moms and dads are even further apart than men and women in general. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) I'm already tired just hearing the results. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) And this was before COVID, right? And there have been so many studies that have come out that show that COVID is so disproportionately affecting women. And many women are leaving the workforce in order to deal with the unimaginable choice they have to make between their careers or their children and their financial independence, right? You know, as working mothers, we build a support system around us. We have to because it's not provided for us. So whether that family members or childcare or, you know, whatever form that takes for you, in order to do what you need to do, you have to have a support structure. And COVID just took all of that away. And yet the expectations on us were the same. If not more. If not more, right. Continue to perform at work at the level you were performing at. Continue to carry the emotional load of the family who's all dealing with anxiety and looking to you to like help them solve that problem, right? Like it's just the load on women is dramatically unequal. And 
our data shows that too. When we re-ran the study in June, same thing, you know, more division between men and women, even more division between moms and dads. And I think it's going to have potentially a generational impact. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. I always love catching up and talking to you. And do you want to just share your website URL so people know where to find you and all this great research? Yeah, sure. We're at alteragents.com. Yeah, there's a thought leadership page where you can get access to our webinars, all of our white papers, you know, articles that we write. We publish quite a bit in Forbes and some other more industry-specific publications. So yeah, all of that is there. And how about social media? Can they follow you on Twitter? Do you have a Twitter handle? Yes. Twitter is Alter Agents with no space. And we're on LinkedIn under the same, I think there might be a hyphen between them. I'm not okay. great at our social media. I'm, I'm going to get yelled at for that. But, <laughs> but yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn are the best places to follow us for social media stuff. And then also on our website, you can sign up for our newsletter. Great. Well, let's make sure we regroup after you get the next wave of research to see where we are. Yeah. And also, I hope the next time we talk, it's happier stuff to talk about. I'm not sure it will be, but let's hope. (laughs) Yeah, I'm hoping to. I'm trying to be an optimist. Yeah. Harder these days. But yes, I I know. Thank you so much. Thank you, Seema. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.